Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, this episode touches on a topic that I don't think we've ever plunged into before. At least that's what one listener pointed out recently. It's about career and technical education, or what used to be known as vocational education. We actually have done a little bit on vocational education or CTE. Uh, So we did an episode with Tina Groger that explored a little bit of the history of it. We did a great episode with Mike Rose, which touched on it. Um, But yeah, we haven't done an episode really dedicated to what is today called career and technical education after vocational education was thoroughly stigmatized across the 20th century. And I think one of the reasons it's really interesting to me is that as we have talked over the years on this show about the importance of a public purpose of public education and the potential dangers in uh, you know, undermining that public purpose and framing education as something that is explicitly for individuals and telling every individual, hey, you're on your own, go out and figure it out yourself. I think one of the risks that we haven't really talked about is that um, the the full breadth of education can really be narrowed, particularly for populations that have pressing economic needs. The idea of education for work, for work that can lead to the middle class and economic opportunity, um, that can be really appealing. And it, of course, comes in many cases, not in all cases, but it comes at the expense of the full mission of education. And if we act as a public, right, we can ensure that maybe all of these things happen for young people. But if we send people out on their own, I think some people are really vulnerable. Well, Jack, as is so often the case with our episodes, the idea for this came from multiple places. We started hearing about this from a number of different people. And I want to share with you a little bit from an email I got from a teacher. I'm not going to say who she is or where she is because she didn't give me permission for that. But I just thought you would be interested to hear what she had to say. As a longtime public school teacher, I'm troubled by an educational movement that I see sweeping through many of our nation's school systems. While I find your podcast, Have You Heard, moving, insightful, and on point, I have yet to hear you or your co-host mention this new movement. I feel like we should have some, like a little bit of an ominous soundtrack. And then she goes on to say that, you know, career and technical education is getting more and more popular. And what worries her is that as early as the winter of fifth grade, she sees students having to make choices that are going to put them on a, a path that basically determines their future, and that while working in a trade may seem really attractive to a 10-year-old, you know, they're, they're, it's limiting them in a way that we haven't really reckoned with. So this question sort of stopped me short, and then when I started hearing from other folks who were grappling with the same thing, I made a, a unilateral decision that it was time for us to do an episode. Yeah. I'll just note that some of these tensions are not new, right? That as long as there has been vocational education, these questions like when should students have to decide um, and 
what do these different paths look like? And, you know, who is going to be encouraged to pursue vocational education? These questions have arisen. And, you know, I, again, I want to be fair to CTE programs and CTE educators. They can often be the best and most exciting programs at a school. They can really engage students. They can make students feel really excited about showing up to school. And they can make the rest of the curriculum suddenly look really relevant. And so the problem here is not inherent to career and technical education. The problem is that we often don't have great and systematic answers to these questions. And if we don't, then we have to watch out for things like, you know, are all of the low-income kids being tracked into a vocational education program that is not academic in nature? Um, we certainly have seen that across uh, the past 150 years, um, again, with lots of exceptions, with lots of great CTE programs. Well, Jack, you stand by. I'm going to be introducing us to a cast of thousands, but I'll be bringing you back in. And just to make sure you're prepared, have your goggles at the ready. <laughs> okay. This story starts out, as so many stories do, with a little late-night internet searching. The searcher in question was a parent named Sarah Ward in Midlothian, Virginia, which is near Richmond. Sarah doesn't remember what it was that she started out looking for, but she found something that really surprised her. I came across a report on the Chamber of Commerce's website that Chesterfield County Public Schools was going to adopt Ford Academies. And this was going to be a model that they implemented in their high schools. There were five high schools that have been selected for this adoption. And there had been a PR firm was already engaged to sell the programming to parents. And so it was quite a surprise because the parents didn't know. I'm, I'm a very involved parent with the school system locally. And so I, I would have thought that I, it would have been something I would have been aware of. Full disclosure, I'd never heard of Ford Academies. So, like Sarah, I was off to do some internet research, and I quickly discovered that they're just one piece of a larger initiative known as Ford Next Generation Learning, or Ford NGL. That would be Ford, as in the Ford Motor Company. Here's the CEO of Ford NGL describing the vision. What Ford Next Generation Learning does is really help students prepare for college and career and life by engaging in real-world learning. For instance, they might work on an authentic project with their teachers and the local employer. So they're learning their academics through the lens of that project, but they're also developing critical 21st century skills, like working together in teams, problem solving, valuing diverse opinions, communication. So it's a really great way to integrate those 21st century skills with their core academics and uh, bring their learning to life. If you're a regular listener to this program, you no doubt picked up on a familiar theme. That would be the age-old quest by businesses to make schools more business-like, as education historian Larry Cuban might put it. And what troubled Sarah Ward was that her school district seemed to have signed on to this vision without any real discussion or debate. 
apparently a lot of our school staff, the principals of the schools, um, as well as members of our school board had traveled to Nashville to view or to visit these Ford academies in Nashville and their trip had been paid for by the Chamber of Commerce. So this was a very uh, clear partnership between our school system and the Chamber of Commerce to implement these academies, these career and technical education academies. Across the country in Colorado, parent Sherry Kiesecker was similarly troubled. Sherry is the co-chair of the Parent Coalition for Student Privacy, and she was already concerned about the amount of data that schools and the vendors they contract with collect. But it was a career survey from a company called Naviance that spurred her to action. They don't call it a survey, by the way, but a college and career readiness technology solution. Your student had to take the surveys if they were going to attend the public school. And the more I looked into it, at the time we were trying to pass legislation in Colorado, student privacy legislation, and every year the bills that we were trying to present got tanked or or derailed by lobbyists. This Naviance stuff kind of happened right around that time. And I actually contacted Naviance because my kids were asked to use it. And asked, hey, can I see what you do with the data? Uh, What's going on with all these surveys? Who gets to see them? How's the data used? And the the vice president replied to me and said that it was proprietary and confidential and they didn't have to share it. Fast forward to 2016, and Colorado did finally pass a data privacy law, thanks in large part to the activism of Sherry and other parents. And she says that while it's a fairly weak law, it does provide some protections. But what it does say is every data element collected by a a contracted vendor, like if uh, the Ford Academies were collecting the data, and in this case, Naviance, you had to say what data elements were collected, their educational purpose, and who they were shared with, with subcontractors and show the contracts. So I went back and asked Naviance again on behalf of a lot of parents, and uh, they did share a few data elements and they did share some of the third-party contractors, but nowhere have we figured out how the data is actually being used. And that that's my biggest concern is How is this data being repurposed and packaged and actually restricting or limiting kids' options in the future? In other words, while their specific focus was different, Sherry and Sarah were both worried about the same thing, that in the name of preparing kids for careers, their future options might actually end up being limited. And they're not alone in having that concern. Here's Sherry again. When you're in eighth grade, ninth grade, do you really know what career you're you're interested in? Have you had those experiences? I'm I'm an adult and I still don't know. So how is this limiting what curriculum you're put on, what, what pathway you're told to do? And I know a lot of parents were upset because they would come home and their kid would be like, mom, it said I should be a florist or I should be an acupuncturist. And I really would really thought that I wanted to be. What AI is telling this kid or his peers what they should be when they grow up, and then how restrictive is that? Okay, so Jack, it's time to bring you back in. This episode is about career and technical education, or CTE, but in order to understand what that is and where it's headed, we need a little primer on the ancestry of CTE, and I'm talking, of course, about vocational education. So I'm going to suggest that we start our trip together with a stop at an imaginary vocational school. We'll be dropping by the automobile repair program. Any idea of what we're going to be doing there? 
what a, this is a ludicrous question. Uh, I'll play along. It's, it's imaginary. Uh, so it's flying cars, but why? that's not funny, so why would you do that? It's, um, I feel like there's an ed tech joke in here someplace. I don't know, Jennifer, what, what are we going to be looking at? The answer is the time machine repair program, obvi. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Uh, longtime listeners have probably been wondering uh, where the time machine is and why its sound effects aren't uh, aren't functioning. Well, Jack, I'll see what I can do about the time machine sound effect. Perhaps the students attending our imaginary vocational education program will be able to fix it. But what <laughs> we need you to do right now is to provide us with a brisk overview of where vocational education came from in the first place. And I think what I'm really curious about was whether there was ever a sort of golden era of vocational education. Because as as long as I can recall, people have complained about it. And I'm thinking back to the episode we just did, paying tribute to Mike Rose, and how much of his work was responding to this idea that these programs had really become a kind of dumping ground. I don't know if I appreciate, Jennifer, that you always use the word brisk when you ask me to provide a historical overview of things, but I'll be as quick as I can here. Um, Vocational education comes out of the 19th century, and really uh, it illustrates the fact that people didn't have a clear sense of what high schools were supposed to do at that time, right? The high schools as a kind of technology, uh, and we don't think of them that way, but they certainly are one, uh, were a new technology. Most people did not attend high school, uh, even though free taxpayer-supported open enrollment schools had been around for you know several decades in most cases and many decades in a few cases. People still generally completed their schooling by around eighth grade. In many cases, earlier than that, students often left school with basic literacy and numeracy uh, and often began working on the farm or in factories. Again, this is the 19th century, so uh, education was less important, at least uh, rhetorically speaking, for employment needs uh, and career advancement. The people who stayed in high school were people who generally were pretty privileged and they were pursuing what was then referred to as a classical curriculum. This often involved the study of Latin and Greek, possibly German, and some arcane subjects like mechanical drawing, zoology, botany. As high schools begin expanding, as access begins opening, there are questions then about what the curriculum should look like exactly. Certainly there are questions about the relevance of the typical classical curriculum. And so one of the kinds of experiments that happened was an experiment in what today we call career and technical education, the idea that you could be prepared for a particular line of work. Um, There are, of course, alternatives there, right? You could be prepared for that line of work through an apprenticeship, but uh, one such experiment was, can we do this through the schools? And it begins to happen almost immediately in a fashion that today we would refer to as tracking, where 
uh, you know, people expressed a strong preference for the education of highest value, which in that case was the classical education. The people saw that that gave their children a social and economic advantage. And, you know, that has less to do with uh, the relevance of what they were learning and any possible applicability of their knowledge and skills and was much more rooted in the fact that whatever the elite are doing in America uh, often bears higher status and the rest of us want to follow suit. Um, so we see early problems with tracking and the first major federal intervention was the Smith-Hughes Act of 1917, which authorized federal funding for vocational education. And there were people who were against it immediately who people might be surprised to hear we're against it. So John Dewey, right, famous advocate of learning by doing, of hands-on education, was opposed to vocational education because he saw it as an alternative to the kind of education that would engage young people in real cognitive work, in uh, what Mike Rose would refer to as, uh, you know, the work of the mind. And... Uh, this carries forward across the 20th century where vocational education increasingly became a dumping ground for uh, immigrants, for kids from working class backgrounds, poor backgrounds, for kids of color, for kids who didn't speak English uh, as their first language. And scholars like Jeannie Oakes really brought this to the attention, not only of the scholarly community, but of the broader public in the 1970s and 1980s. And by the 90s, vocational education had a real image problem. And not surprisingly, they got a makeover, right? Today, we don't talk about vocational education. We talk about career and technical education. And in many cases, it has changed. Uh, you know, in many cases, CTE programs are difficult to get into, uh, provide students with lots of access to career opportunities without watering down the academic curriculum for them. And yet, there still is this troubling history to contend with. Thank you for that, Jack. That was actually quite brisk. Now back to the present. One of the hallmarks of career and technical education is how tightly aligned it is with the needs of employers. For Sarah Ward, that really became obvious when Virginia was trying to lure a certain mega retailer into locating its second headquarters in the state. And Virginia was ultimately successful in part because it promised Amazon 25,000 trained workers. It's part of an ambitious retooling of the state and its schools and that's what concerns Sarah. Virginia Economic Development Partnership actually put together a package when Amazon, when they were trying to sell Amazon on the state, putting their headquarters here. In so doing that, they developed a, a plan for the state of various industries that are in different parts of the state. And so they were tailoring the career and tech jobs for the industries in those parts of the state. So basically, if you're in Midlothian and you learn how to, I don't know, say, work on power lines, but you move to Tidewater, Virginia, and you want to be a shipbuilder instead, you don't have those skills. You haven't been trained for that, basically. It's very targeted to the industries that are in your particular region. Meanwhile, back in Colorado, Sherry Kiesecker saw the same trend emerging. Republicans and Democrats alike seem to agree that helping employers meet their future workforce needs, well, that's what schools are supposed to do. 
So if your area, your region is workforce sector and they need X number of jobs, Chamber of Commerce or whoever has decided that these are your workforce strategies, it's a bipartisan thing where your your state is going to be involved in those workforce sectors. So you sort of end up being profiled for what jobs are valuable for your community, not necessarily what jobs you might be interested in, but just what is slated as valuable. So what if you wanted to be a poet or you thought maybe you wanted to be a musician? That's probably not very economically valuable. So that's not going to be an option on your little algorithm profile that you you had to take for school. I want to bring in another guest. Jeff Bryant is a writer and a friend of mine. He covers school privatization for publications including Salon, The Progressive, and The Washington Post. And he started looking into what was going on in Virginia after he was contacted by a teacher friend. I, I had witnessed CTE programs in the past in my reporting, for instance. I remember reporting about a linked learning program in Long Beach schools in California And I could tell right away that this was a CTE of a very different kind. It it isn't just about uh, giving uh, students access to utilitarian skills. It's it's about training students to work, not just necessarily for a particular company, but for a particular entity within that company. Like, we don't teach you how to weld. We teach you how to weld at this manufacturing plant. Uh, And so I I realized right away that this was something that needed to be reported about because people weren't paying attention to it. Jeff ended up writing a series of articles on the growing corporate influence behind CTE, and his work caught the attention of researcher Veleslava Hillman. Veli is a visiting fellow at the London School of Economics and studies ed tech and data privacy. She describes the focus of her work as children's choices and voices at school. I love that. And it was the diminishment of both that really concerned her as she started to look into the new brand of career and technical education. The things that concern me as a researcher, as an academic, first is content. Who decides what sort of content is going to be placed in the CTE in the, in the particular training? So suddenly it's not just, it's not computer science where you can also study philosophy and ethics, but it is learning Cisco systems, learning Amazon, AWS, and so forth. The second thing is the legitimacy. So these corporations are suddenly, not suddenly, but gradually coming in as the legitimate power, as a legitimate pedagogic authority. If they're providing these courses and this training, suddenly we accept them as the norm. Again, we're shifting away from the the voice of the student, of the individual. So something is done about them, not necessarily with them. These are arguments. Of course, there are arguments, so we can talk about these. But these are the first things that come to mind that that I want to investigate and that that Jeff and I have have been discussing. And that's why we delved further into policy um, and, you know, to see what exactly is behind this. Is there even governance uh, set up to ensure that these are not just uh, beta, you know, experiments, uh, but they, they will deliver what they promise to deliver? The article Jeff and Veli wrote together is currently making its way through the peer review process. Much of it focuses on policy changes that are enabling corporate influence in CTE and the collection of data at every step of the way, including the overhaul of the Perkins program, which is the main federal funder of career and technical education. Jeff says that as he started to dig in, he kept encountering familiar themes. 
Yeah, on the policy issue, I think we're also seeing that this is an outgrowth in large part of the education reform movement, where there's been this idea that's been built up over years by those people that a big problem in education is the lack of alignment. And so here we have people making decisions about how to align people's education with the workforce without even asking those people and involving those people, just by designing a top-down system that is meant to create that alignment. Governments are now incentivizing that kind of thinking. Uh, Perkins in particular, it, it was rewritten, and it specifically states that education programs funded by Perkins need to be aligned with regional businesses. So it really is an outgrowth of the education reform movement in many ways. And of course, the data tracking, which is also a central part of, of education reform. Much of Veli Hillman's work has focused on the lack of accountability of ed tech companies, even as their role in the classroom just keeps growing. She sees something similar happening with CTE and hopes that more researchers will consider questions of governance in their work, something that at least some European researchers are starting to think about. The discussion there was about proper governance being set up when students are taken to internships or to career technical training. Uh, For example, how employers should be reporting, uh, monitoring and evaluating from the moment, you know, from the starting of the of the traineeship or the internship to the end. So there's some some governance mechanisms set up. So it'll be interesting to explore and compare and see what works, what doesn't. So in some ways, this is a new story, obviously. Uh, We don't even talk about vocational education programs anymore. We talk about CTE, career and technical education. In the olden days, parents probably weren't worrying so much about data collecting and upskilling and badges, right? But on the other hand, this is actually a really old story. I turn to friend of the show, Tina Groger. People will remember an episode we did with her not that long ago about her incredible book. The Education Trap, um, about the earliest days of vocational training in, in Boston. And I asked Tina if the part of the story we're hearing today about particular companies being eager to partner with schools, you know, whether that was something that she turned up in her research. And she said that she actually featured many of those in her book, and I should know this because I read the book, um, but there were a couple of them that really jumped out. Um, so, for example, there she found machine shops in the Boston area that couldn't wait to partner with the schools to train machinists to work in specific factories. There was a new program that trained people to be sales associates, and it was developed in partnership with Filene's, which was the flagship department store in Boston. So, young Jenny would go and be trained in things like customer service and and uh, you know basic accounting, and then she would go and work at Filene's. And you could down just in the basement. See, she would work in the basement. Her job would be to monitor that crazy dressing room. But you can see how this impulse of workers to shape and mold these programs in ways that narrow their potential is actually there from the very beginning. Well, one thing this is reminding me of, Jennifer, is some of the economics research into uh, the importance of making people pay for things. And why am I talking about this? I don't know. I'm getting nervous already. Are you going to make a case for means testing? It's often (laughs) used as an argument against uh, taxpayer-supported public education, right? That people ought to pay for it themselves. But 
I want to flip that on its head and talk about the problems that we see when employers see a free opportunity to train the workforce, right? It's not a good fit in most cases, uh, but they're eager to offshore that cost, right? To move that cost out of their footprint economically and onto that of the school. Uh, And so I think that that's something that haunts vocational education, career and technical education from the beginning is the fact that there's an opportunity there and many industries, many businesses don't quite know how to capitalize on it, at least not in a way that is good for students, but because it's free, because it's there, uh, they want to take advantage of that opportunity. And then the second problem here is that you know we're often talking about very specific partnerships there, which can be really good, right? Students can be prepared for real jobs that actually exist that they can move directly into out of school. But one of the challenges there is if that job is incredibly specific, if it doesn't exist in that same way someplace else, then students have really been pigeonholed there with regard to what their prospects are. And that, of course, is the opposite of what a good education is supposed to do. A good education is supposed to open up all kinds of opportunities. And it's worth reminding ourselves here that education is not about workforce development. Right, that that's certainly one thing that can come out of it. But you know, you've mentioned Mike Rose a couple times in this episode so far, and one of the powerful reminders that he issues across most of his work is that school is about something much bigger than jobs, and it can be really hard to remember that on a good day <laughs> in public education, given all of the rhetoric about what schools are for, and the impact on America's economy. Um, But it's particularly difficult to remember when we are talking specifically about career and technical education, right? We've already bounded our sights a bit there. Uh, And, you know, I do want to say that there are career and technical education programs here in the U.S., um, as well as abroad in places like Germany, that do an amazing job of giving young people skills that actually give them access to the middle class, um, that open up economic opportunities that do so without sacrificing the intellectual work that can happen in school, and that do so without pigeonholing them into you know a single job at a single business, which might actually disappear sometime in the future, leaving this young person vulnerable with regard to their economic future. Um, but There still are these other risks here when we're talking about partnerships that in many cases aren't really organic, that really are just the result of uh, opportunism on the part of businesses who are seeking to eliminate their own costs for training uh, and are all too happy to let schools and taxpayers bear those costs. One of the points that Tina makes so eloquently in her fantastic book, The Education Trap, is that for a lot of employers, they saw these school-based programs as an alternative to union-based apprentices, and they really liked that. And you could see how that would be an attraction today too, right? So that if I'm Amazon and I'm using the schools to curate my future workforce, but one of my big goals is to keep my employment sites, like my 
warehouse is free of unions, that I might incorporate some aspect of that into my education program. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Because there's always uh, another batch of labor in the pipeline if it's coming out of the schools, as opposed to if it's being controlled in some way by labor, right, then they can control that pipeline. And that gives labor a lot of power, as opposed to if the schools are always churning out recent graduates who are qualified for a particular line of work, that actually really undermines uh, the power of labor there. They are always going to be competing with people who are younger and more freshly trained. Now back to our experts. One of the things that makes the topic of career and technical education confounding is that, well, it sounds like such a great idea. Who doesn't want kids to be career ready? That's a conversation that parent activists like Sarah Ward and Sherry Kiesecker have had again and again. Here's Sherry. On the surface, yeah, it sounds really good. Parents want to have options for their kids. But when they realize how much data is being collected and they ask their schools, what evidence do we have that this is actually helpful to kids and not harmful? That's where we run into kind of the wall because you can't see what other options there are out there for kids. And by putting them on this pathway at such a young age, and this is still an experiment, it's an experiment on kids. I think it's great in one sense to give apprenticeships and give kids all kinds of options to explore without the strings attached and without the data collection that's going to follow them and be their their new credit score. I think parents are really concerned about the data collection and they're concerned about the pigeonholing. I think they're also very concerned about tech replacing actual human beings and teachers. Way back at the start of this episode, I mentioned that we'd be hearing from a cast of thousands, and I really wasn't exaggerating by much. There's one more voice I want to bring in. It belongs to James Freeman. He's an English teacher at Meadowbrook High School in Chesterfield County. His was one of the schools slated to become a Ford Academy, part of the Ford Next Generation Learning Endeavor we heard about earlier. James was an outspoken opponent of the plan, but it's not because he's opposed to career and technical training. In fact, James says that the way the system is currently run, vocational education is increasingly limited to quote-unquote good students. I am someone who's very supportive. Career and technical education, vocational training, I think that students should have the choice for that. I think it's important for everybody to learn these technical skills. What we have now is we have these programs that are separated from students' home schools. And those programs also limit who can take it. So you cannot get into vocational training in Chesterfield County, not the standard one at the career and technical academies we have, without having good grades, good attendance, a letter of recommendation, an essay that passes muster. So it's really kind of gatekeeping this, making sure that they can have their little pristine technical academy where there's no behavioral problems that they can really use as a showcase, but it's not serving the actual needs of students who desire career and technical education. In other words, James wants to see more students be able to access career and technical education, but the programs need to be about expanding their future options, not limiting them. Having having a corporate-run program that's designed to funnel students into a specific workplace is, is certainly a concern. Technical education that's being proposed for all students is not the sort of thing that's really going to open you up to a lot of different possibilities. It'll open you up to work in a specific factory. 
A huge thanks to special guests James Freeman, Sherry Kiesecker, and Sarah Ward for sharing their stories, and to Dr. Velislava Hillman and journalist Jeff Bryan for sharing their research, and of course, to our own Jack Schneider for bringing us up to speed on the long history of vocational education. He and I will be right back to talk about how the conservative turn against woke capitalism might impact the future of CTE, and of course, we'll be revealing the topic of this episode's In the Wheat segment for our Patreon supporters. Here's a hint. It's something we've never done before, and it involves answering your questions. If that interests you, just head over to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a subscriber. Jack, I'm going to invoke a name that I don't think has ever been mentioned on this show before, and that name is Tucker Carlson. <laughs> I some part of me thought honestly that you were going to say Mr. Rogers and I feel like this is the this is the opposite of Mr. Rogers. <laughs> well, several years ago, Tucker Carlson gave a speech at a conservative event and and it was really it was very eye-opening. He said basically, you know that as conservatives, they had always painted the state as the enemy. But now they're beginning to realize that it's really the corporations that are the problem. And I thought about that speech repeatedly as we were working on this episode. I could really feel why conservative parents might look at the encroachment of these career and technical education programs as an effort by corporations to mold their kids. You see a little bit of this already in that the furor against critical race theory has now expanded to include social and emotional learning, which was basically something that businesses wanted, right? Like they said, we need students to be able, we need them to have soft skills. We need them to be able to sit around in a group and watch as somebody delivers a really long PowerPoint presentation. Schools, can you fix this? And so when you look back at the recent history of, you know, the last days of vocational ed, the early days of career and technical education, it really stands out as being a bipartisan enterprise. This was something that everybody could agree on. And I'm wondering if, like the implosion of the treaty we've seen on other issues, like accountability, like charter schools, if this one's going to blow up too. Yeah, I think that's a pretty astute observation there, Jennifer. Thank you, Jack. Let's end the show here. (laughs) Uh, You know, I think that we can talk about a consensus around social efficiency in the 20th century, right? That if we take uh, the three goals of public education that David Labrie identifies in his work, um, we can kind of bound them by era there, right? That uh, in the common school era, uh, the purpose of school was democratic equality. Um, Let's prepare young people to participate in a representative democracy. Let's allow them some exposure to each other so that they can live together in an increasingly diverse society. And in the 20th century, there was the rise of a new aim, uh, and that was social efficiency. Let's sort people for their projected futures. And there was consensus around that. And what we began to see in the second half of the 20th century, and which is completely ascendant now, is the aim of social mobility. 
using the schools to get ahead for your own personal advancement. And whereas democratic equality and social efficiency are public aims, and obviously social efficiency doesn't seem so nice if you're being tracked for a you know, bottom-rung job, but again, the aim is a public one, right? That that will save taxpayers money. They won't have to spend more sending you all the way through college or possibly an advanced degree because you are bound for some lower paying, lower prestige job, will allot less education to you and sort you efficiently for your future. Um, Again, it's still a public aim, uh, (laughs) which, you know, I hesitate to say that some public aims are not particularly good. Uh, But the aim of getting ahead, right? The idea of using the schools to advance ahead of other people socially and economically, right? That's a private aim. That's an aim that advances individuals, uh, often at the expense of other individuals. And that coincides very neatly with the rise of Goldwater conservatism, the rise of libertarianism in the United States, and what we've talked about many times on this show uh, as a kind of conservative backlash against traditional conservative approaches to education. Um, You know, the rise of parental rights, the rise of this desire to make decisions without uh, considering the impact of those decisions on anybody else, right? We are individual free agents competing against each other in a free market. And so I think absolutely, the idea of social efficiency as a kind of core aim for the American public education system um, is no longer a consensus idea, right? We could absolutely picture George W. Bush and Barack Obama um, advancing the same vision there. And I think that we are much less likely to hear uh, the next Republican candidate for president talking about schools as being good for promoting the American economy. And frankly, I would be surprised if whoever is running on the Democratic ticket uh, in the next presidential election, whether it's Joe Biden or somebody else, I would be surprised if they say that. I think we are seeing a split here, um, and it's hard to predict which way the left will go, but I think certainly the right is going to begin talking more and more about what schools can do for individuals, never mind what they can do for the American economy and much less for American democracy. Well, Jack, I know you must be thinking to yourself after such an exciting episode and so many trips in the time machine, you're probably wondering, what could we talk about in the weeds that could live up to that level of, you, of excitement? You know me so well, Jennifer. That is, that's exactly what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, let's come up with more to talk about and let's make people pay for it. Well, great news. We're going to do something that we have never done before in the weeds or out of the weeds. We're going to open up the listener mailbag. As you know, we get tons of mail correspondence from our listeners, and oftentimes it inspires episodes of the show. But they also have all sorts of other questions that don't necessarily rise to the occasion of doing a whole episode, and we're going to address some of them now. If this intrigues you, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a supporter. You'll see a list of all the cool extras you can get just by supporting the show to the tune of a few dollars every month. We do a custom reading list for every episode. We say that it's Jack's reading list, but really Jennifer does all the work. 
No, 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 no. Excuse me, I've got a lot of emails in my inbox saying, all we need is a reading list, and then I send you all the readings. So let's, let's correct that misconception there. Well, Jack, once you calm down from that latest outrage, <laughs> are there any other ways that people can support the show? There are not. That's the only way. On that note, I'm Jack. No, 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 no. You know, folks, there are lots of other ways to support the show uh, without spending your hard-earned Ethereum. So uh, if you aren't yet a subscriber, then shame on you. Uh, Make sure that you are so that you get the latest episodes whenever they're released. Um, Go ahead and give us a rating wherever you download the show. That helps make the show more visible when people search for it. Uh, We love hearing from you. Uh, The Twitter handle is at Have You Heard Pod, and many of you, when you are sharing the episode with your networks or your friends or your family, uh, will tag us as you do so over Twitter. That's always fun to see. And of course, Jennifer and I have a book out, A Wolf of the Schoolhouse Door. It's in libraries across America. Uh, let's keep that thing in circulation uh, so that the library feels compelled to buy one more with public funds for the public use. Thank you for that, Jack. Although I have to say, I am starting to get the feeling that you are actually a Bitcoin miner. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm trying to diversify my e-portfolio right now. So it's been more Ethereum lately than Bitcoin. And if I could name a third one of these things, I would claim to own that too. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. 